KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. Welcome back to another edition of listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm Beth Accomando. This year, Daniela Vega of A Fantastic Woman made history as the first openly transgender person to be a presenter at the Academy Awards. The film took home the Best Foreign Oscar, while Yance Ford made Oscar history by being the first trans director to earn a nomination for Best Documentary for the film Strong Island. The 2018 Oscars pointed to the increased visibility of underrepresented communities. The Academy still has a long way to go to represent the true diversity of the world beyond Hollywood's borders, but it does represent progress. Since San Diego's LGBTQ Film Festival Film Out celebrates its 20th anniversary this year, I thought it would be a good time to reflect on the state of LGBTQ cinema and what a festival focusing on that community might need to look like moving forward. For this podcast, I'll speak with the founder of Film Out as well as its current programmer. Then I'll speak with filmmakers premiering their works June 7th through the 10th at the Observatory North Park during Film Out 2018. If you're not in San Diego, you can seek some of these films out later when they become available streaming and VOD. But all my guests have insights into where LGBTQ cinema has been and where it's going. First, I'm thrilled to have an opportunity to speak with my good friend, Joe Ferrelli, who's the founder of San Diego's LGBTQ Film Festival. I've known Joe for decades and was in San Diego when he started Film Out as part of his thesis project at San Diego State University. Yes, it was. Uh, I did my thesis project, a written part, and then this was the, the actual project part. So um, my actual thesis was about I was interested in exploring um, a gay sensibility and not particularly in only gay films. So throughout the history of American cinema, so that's what led to creating this film out because at the time San Diego did not have uh, any kind of gay film fest. And 20 years ago, how common was it for cities to have gay film festivals? It was pretty common. For larger cities, there were, there were a number of them. And originally, we wanted to try and do this over the weekend, which would be October 11th, which was then National Coming Out Day. And it was difficult to get films a lot of times for, during those, those periods. So yeah, there were a number of gay film fests already in progress. And when you started it here in San Diego, what was kind of your goal or what was your mission statement? What did you want to do with that festival? My goal was to try and, especially uh, at that time, to showcase underrepresented minorities within the gay community, women's films, minority films. And the, the very first year of Film Out, uh, was, uh, there were a few films that were about um, African-American drag queens. There was the documentary Angel on My Shoulder about uh, an actress, Gwen Wells, who was very popular in the early 70s. She made some films with Altman, and this was a documentary about her made by a, a lesbian filmmaker. So it was more trying to 
showcase those, those kinds of things. I know your film tastes well. We used to go to Telluride together and we saw a lot of films together. So I, I, I kind of know that you have uh, you have a unique sensibility when it comes to film and you tend to like things that are out of the mainstream. So when you were tackling the festival, it also seems to me that unlike some other LGBT festivals, you seem to be driven a little less by maybe the politics of it or the, the social aspects and more by the art of cinema. I mean, you seem to really love movies. Like, that seems to be where the core of the festival comes from. Yes, and speaking of Telluride, one of the, I think it was the first year at Telluride where I was introduced to Terrence Davies, and the movie was Distant Voices Still Lives. Memories are the sounds of distant voices and the echoes of still lives. Taking a chance from Terence Davies, Britain's most highly acclaimed new director, comes a unique and original portrait of an unforgettable family. Nothing explicitly or either implicitly gay in the film, but somehow I knew that this was a gay filmmaker. And then when he came up and did the Q&A at the end of the film, he started off with as a gay filmmaker. So that kind of interested me to see other films, like looking at the films of George Cukor and how someone who was not really openly gay, how could they put these kinds of suggestions and lifestyle into these otherwise straight films? And over the years, you were with the festival very directly for a, while, for a good number of years, and then now you're kind of on the, the extended board, so to speak. Over this... 20 years, how have you seen film out grow and change and, and kind of what are your thoughts about it at this point? Well, it's just it's been incredible. It, it, Michael uh, McQuiggan has done an incredible job with programming. With Early on, it was very difficult to get sponsors, you know, to try and even, even just getting people out to the movies. So the things they have done, um, you know, the festival has grown so much and there's all kinds of sponsors and all kinds of community involvement now. So I think over the years, seeing that, seeing it blossom has just been thrilling to me. And as there is more representation for the LGBT community on television and in film, do you see the purpose of a festival like this changing? And, and what kind of things do you see for the future of a festival like this in, in terms of how they might change or adapt to the trends that are going on now? Well, I think it's important to still have this kind of a community event for people, especially younger people who might not otherwise be in, in a community with gay people or even be in social situations. So it gives them... Uh, originally, that was, you know, a big intent is to give people a place to go other than the bars, other than somewhere to go out and drink. So this, the idea was to bring people together to introduce films, whether they be, you know, there were certain films that, that I loved and that I, we showed that didn't please everyone or that weren't necessarily positive images of LB, LGBT people, but still important images and, you know, not everything purports to represent an entire community. So I think going off on those, you know, little tangents is, is helpful and uh, enlightening for some. 
And how difficult was it to show films early on that might not have shown necessarily a positive depiction of gay or LGBT life? Because, you know, that's something that for festivals like the Asian Film Festival, Latino Film Festival, women's film festivals, I mean, part of the challenge is sometimes if a film wants to go kind of someplace dark or kind of show characters that aren't necessarily positive, sometimes those films feel this weight of like, well, there's so little representation of this, we have to make sure it presents a good image. And so how hard was it to to show films that challenged audiences in some way? Well, in the the earliest years of the festival, the first few years, I I did one program that I recall, you know, very vividly with um, the movie Flaming Creatures, which was a 60s underground film that was at various times confiscated, uh, projectionists were arrested, and it's this kind of very avant-garde, black and white, no-sync sound, kind of an orgy of a film, for, for lack of a better word. Alibaba comes today. But it was part of a program that I wanted to show kind of the progression of gay films. Also in that program was Kenneth Anger's Fireworks and also um, the silent Salome from the 20s with a purported gay cast. So um, I remember the reaction to Flaming Creatures was horrible. People hated it. People walked out. And it's kind of this, like I said, it's maybe... 35, 40 minutes long, but this black and white avant-garde film that I thought was very important to show as uh, in, in the history of gay cinema, and especially considering the fact that it was confiscated, that it was banned, and that people went to jail for showing this film. So there, were, there was some of that in the beginning, but I tried not to let it deter me from showing these kinds of films. Have you tried showing that film again and, and noticed any difference in the reaction? I uh, have not, have not uh, since then. But like I said, I mean, there were a few people. Um, Fred Salas, who was involved with the Latino Film Festival at the time, absolutely loved it. He came to me afterwards and said, oh, my God, you know, that was great. And I think he and I might have been two of the only people that, that really appreciated it at that time. Now, I think maybe... Um, Considering that there's, with the internet, you can see so many things, and I think people are used to seeing things that are unusual and have maybe a little more of an open mind to something that's not a traditional narrative. Well, and bringing up the internet, do you feel that at this point in time that filmmakers have more at their disposal in terms of the technology they can use and also the means of distributing their own films? And is that changing kind of what's out there for the LGBT community? Oh, absolutely. I I think so because, I mean, you know, you talk about the need for a film festival. And for me, uh, like I said, it's more about that social space where you can go and you can feel that you're, you you can meet up with like-minded people. And with the Internet, it has brought level of exposure to all-time highs. You know, people can see, like, people can just go watch Flaming Creatures if they want without paying for it. So there, there's, it's kind of a, a double-edged sword with the fact that this stuff is so readily available. And unfortunately, a lot of times this doesn't give these filmmakers the opportunity to make back their money 
because people are so used to being able to just see something on the internet, people post it. So it's, uh, it's going to be interesting to see where this all goes. Now, you mentioned this sense of community that you get at a film festival, and it seems like we are leaning towards more and more people watching things at home by themselves or, you know, with a couple of friends or something, as opposed to getting off their butts and actually going to a, a cinema or a theater. And it really seems like, and having just come from the TCM Film Festival, it seems like watching films in a group with people makes the film watching experience so much better. Like it, it, it's there's something about it that group response to what's going on on the screen that alters the experience a bit. And I'm wondering if if that's part of what you really like about festivals. It, it is. It is. And you know, you talk about the TCM festival. You've got people that are already film buffs, film aficionados, loving film. So that's that's great in and of itself. So you're there, again, with, with like-minded individuals, who people who are not going to necessarily talk and, and be distracting. So they're there because they love film. With the Gay Film Festival, I think it's a little less so that people love film. I think it's they want to either see somebody that's in a film or they want to experience that that community aspect of it. Over these past two decades that the, the festival's been around, uh, mm-hmm. have you noticed any recent trends or anything in terms of the kinds of films that get submitted to LGBT festivals or the, the kinds of films that are being made? Well, as, as an outsider, not knowing, not seeing a lot of, of these film festivals, I think that there is a tendency to lead towards comedy, towards light, lighthearted. And there's nothing wrong with that. And certainly, if we look back at the history of gay film, when you see films in the 60s where gay characters, uh, or 50s even, where gay characters have to... They commit suicide, they wind up dead, they're miserable, their lives are ruined. So I think there was kind of a, a reaction to that. And it's funny because uh, we had just spoken about Boys in the Band, and that's a, a great example of something that in 1968, when the play came out, it was groundbreaking. Mark Crowley's hilarious play, The Boys in the Band, is now a movie. It's not a musical. Goodbye, Hank. It was awfully nice meeting you. Same here, Alan. Gonna get to Washington. I'd like you to meet my wife. Right, good. Oh, that'd be fun, wouldn't it, Hank? Mmm, they'd love to meet him. Or her. I have such a problem with pronouns. How many S's are there in the word pronoun? How'd you like to kiss my ass? That's got two or more S's in it. How'd you like to blow me? Some how your wife got locked jaw? But two years later, after the the Stonewall riots, people started looking at it thinking, well, these these characters are full of self-hatred. They are very vicious to one another. And I really think, having just seen the play on Broadway this past weekend with a completely out-gay cast, that really maybe its time has come. The audience roared through the whole thing, and we're, we're very appreciative. So I think now, all these years later, having positive reinforcement and positive gay characters that now we are able to say, okay, this might not represent all gays, all lesbians, whatever, but it certainly represents some people. We know some people like this. So I think that that's, we've come a long way in that 
regard. Now, you mentioned that there was there's sometimes a tendency towards the lighter or to the rom-com types of films. Mm-hmm. You and Michael both love horror. <laughs> right. And uh, are constantly looking for those kind of films to highlight and, and to bring to festivals. And... I'm just wondering, it seems that, you know, when the festival started, there was more of a tendency, if not towards rom-coms and, and lighter fare, a tendency towards films about identity and about coming out and documentaries right. and, and mainly just about this representation. And do you feel that there seems to be kind of a, a recent surge in not just horror, but kind of like genre films by LGBT filmmakers because maybe that weight of you know, uh, having to represent the entire community is allowing them a little more creative freedom? Oh, absolutely. You know, the, the idea of having a, a gay horror film is, is kind of very, very new. I mean, we can probably think of the last decade or so where these kinds of films have been able to be made. And Yes, the, the, I don't think that the filmmakers at, at, at previous to a decade ago, they did have to make those identity films, or they thought they did, and, or, or that's what people were looking for, coming out films. And now it's rather nice when you don't have, I mean, you have some, some films that still explore those things, which, again, are important, especially for younger viewers to see that it is possible to live a happy gay lifestyle. But um, I do think that it's kind of opened it up for, for genre pictures. Uh, I mean, there, there are gay musicals as well, musical films, that even though those are lighter, you wouldn't have seen those maybe 15, 20 years ago. And I'm curious about one thing. I've interviewed a lot of gay filmmakers who are making horror because Michael has programmed, last year he programmed a block of horror shorts. And this year there are some films with some darker tones as well. And one thing that came up in our conversations was I asked these filmmakers, you know, how do you define kind of the genre you're working in? And most of them preferred the term of calling it queer horror as opposed mm-hmm. to gay or, or LGBT. And right. when I use that term, it sometimes really puts some people off, people both in the gay community and outside. And I'm just wondering, as someone who, because I know that you've talked about queer cinema as part of, you know, what you're interested in. I'm just wondering about that term and, and kind of the weight it carries and, and what it kind of means for people within the gay community. Well, for me, as I was writing my thesis, too, there was this, you know, this wave of uh, new queer cinema, it was, it was called, and people like Todd Haynes and Gregor Rocky and filmmakers who didn't make those necessarily those identity films. But to me, queer was more in your face. It was more, I am not going to offer any explanations for who I am or why I am this way. So for me, it was kind of like the whole idea of being gay is taken for granted. So a film like Parting Glances. It was another day in New York. Robert was moving to Africa. I want to leave because it's gotten too settled. Michael was hating him for it. Thanks for pointing that up so clearly. Shall I murder you now or later? And Nick was dying of AIDS. Do you know the difference between straight guys and gay guys? Uh, I forget. There isn't any. To me, that was a groundbreaking film because 
it just it's it's a night in the life of this gay couple and it's not about them being gay or having to deal with being gay that's a given it just puts you into their situation and this is what happens the night before one of them is supposed to leave to go away and leaving his lover behind and Steve Buscemi playing the the lover's best friend a character with AIDS so this to me like i said was groundbreaking in that i felt like oh my god this is the first time i've really seen something where there's no explanation of of why they're gay or this this angst that goes along with being gay. So that's kind of what this queer meant to me. And kind of even when you talk about people like like Gregoraki, it's it's very in your face. Sometimes violent, sometimes very out of the out of the ordinary, not the norm. So I embrace that term especially during that time in the new queer cinema, which I feel was, was very important, the films of Todd Haynes. Again, someone like a, a film like Safe, which has no homosexuality, nothing about it, yet it is imbued with this queer sensibility. Well, do you think the term maybe puts people off because of the fact that you, you say it has this sense of challenging people and that it makes people more uncomfortable in a, in a certain sense? Because it's not about... I want you to accept me. It's more about like this is a, a, a perspective I have that I want you to take a look at or something. Absolutely. And you look at something, you look at a film like La Caja Fall, which came out in the late 70s, and a very successful film about two lovers, two gay men, yet there is something disarming about the fact that the one is a, a drag performer. And it's, it's very light in a sense. It still dealt with some some heavy issues, but I feel like audiences, they've come a long way, but 70s, 80s, even 90s, it was more difficult for them to see something that wasn't this stereotypical, harmless gaze. And that's what I think this, this queer moniker does. It kind of, it's, it's, you look at, uh, you know, the AIDS uh, act up. We're here, we're queer, get used to it. That was kind of this retaking of that term queer. What do you think about the fact that there are people within the gay community who also don't? I mean, I can see like a straight audience I th- or a straight community, I think, is uncomfortable with it because we just don't know how using that term sounds you know, like, mm-hmm. we, we, you don't feel like I don't feel entirely comfortable sometimes using it because people may take offense. But I'm wondering, like, within the gay community, it seems like there's a split in terms of how they also view the ter- view the term. I, yes, I, I believe that is true. It's, and again, when we talk about different generations, the generation maybe right before mine where that word was still used uh, as a, a vicious uh, you know, a uh, tool for people to put people down to perhaps, you know, beat them up. So uh, again, it was this kind of term like dyke. Dyke was another term that I feel was taken back. You know, now the every gay festival has a dyke march. So, and I'm sure there are certain women within the community that don't like those that term and don't like the expression and have negative feelings associated with it, like queer for some gay men. But I feel like uh, more and more as we get more into the 21st century, that that kind of falls by the wayside, that those people that use that term derogatorily, it doesn't really matter to the, the newer 
the newer uh, LGBT audiences or community. Well, and I found it interesting that it tended to be the horror filmmakers who seemed to be the most comfortable <laughs> using that mm-hmm. term as opposed to to other filmmakers. Right. And I think that's because we were there it's new territory. You know, queer horror films are a new genre. So to kind of and again, when I don't know personally, when I think of queer and I think of someone like Gregoraki and I think of The Living End, for example, something about these HIV positive guys that kind of go on this this rampage. It was it was an angry, it was nothing is being done about this disease. So there was this angry reaction. And I think that's where the term for me kind of gets a lot of its weight. And for you, what are some of the films that you feel like if you were to program your own little festival right now to kind of pick a few titles that you think are really key to gay cinema or queer cinema, what what are a few films that you would like recommend people to make sure they go check out? All right, now, are you talking from history? Yeah. You know, if, or, yeah like over this well, past 20 years, like if you could pick out a few titles from, you know, the past couple decades that you think are really significant for kind of summing it up. Hmm, that's tough. I would say, I would certainly say um, Hedwig and the Angry Inch would be one. Uh, you have a, a queer, uh, and, and I refer to John Cameron Mitchell as a, as a queer filmmaker. Definitely that. Uh, basically, any of his films, too. And uh, Todd Haynes, the same with Todd Haynes films. I'm having trouble just pulling titles. It's easier for me to go further back. Well, you can go further back, and maybe maybe it's more a list of directors then, as opposed to film titles. You're right, uh, and if we if we did that, it would be it would be Todd Haynes, it would be Terrence Davies. Again, uh, I mean Davies' early films, his first three short films were all this very bleak, dark, black and white about the angst of a character much like Davies uh, not accepting his homosexuality. But then his films from there, I would certainly say The Long Day Closes, which is Davies as a young boy starting to realize his gay feelings. Um, so Fassbender, the films of Fassbender, um, even something like Corel, which is not one of Fassbender's finest, certainly uh, it's very interesting. Brad Davis being an actor who died of AIDS. There's some, some great stuff in there. Uh, the Bitter Tears of Petra von Kant. Fox and His Friends, those, all those Fassbender films. And then I would even say, I think Boys in the Band and um, Parting Glances are great bookends. You know, you have this 1970 movie, and then it's, it seems like a very short period of time, but Parting Glances 16 years later, and wow, what a difference in these, these um, depictions of gay life. And do you see any trends right now uh, moving forward, anything that you've noticed that you feel is either promising or troubling? Well, the, the most troubling thing to me, and it's not just with, with uh, LGBT cinema, is the fact that that film is gone. For me, I still go out of my way to see film prints, as I know you do and as I know Michael does. So... At first, I, was, I had a very difficult time with watching things that were video. And the technology has come further, but it's kind of sad to me that filmmakers cannot make films anymore, for the most part. 
You know, Terrence Davies shot his last film on 70 millimeter, but it really didn't get shown in 70 millimeter because nobody can really project it except for a few maybe museums. So that to me is the most troubling, disconcerting, sad aspect of it all. Well, I want to thank you very much for taking some time to talk to me and kind of revisit the birth of film out well thank you very much it's been my pleasure and uh, as i said i unfortunately could not make it to the festival this year and uh, i wish i could have um, and i wish them all the success in the world and i'm happy they have grown as much as they have that was joe forelli who founded film out 20 years ago michael mcquigan has been programming films at film out for 14 years and worked with forelli I asked him how it felt to be celebrating the festival's 20th anniversary. I can't believe it's 20. It seems like yesterday that I just took over as program director. I'm excited. I mean, 20 years is a, is a significant milestone. Uh, you know, who, who knows what the future lies as far as LGBT film festivals overall in general, unless you're in a significant uh, market. But I'm hopeful that we'll kind of um, decide how this festival goes this year to see how we can move forward in um, future festivals that fill out. And in those years that you've been programming, what kind of changes have you seen in terms of the kinds of submissions you've gotten and the kinds of things that you can program? Well, they definitely started out in a more of a lighter tone. I think initially when I started out, most of the, the most of the I wouldn't say lighter tone. I think they were more socially relevant themes like dealing with AIDS and HIV and and homeless and um, being ostracized. And now it kind of has taken a different spin on it, where that where the, where the focus on the films that have been submitted over the last. I would say a couple of years have had more dark themes and dark tones and more um, realistic and unsettling and more experimental filmmaking. And there seems to be a lot. I think it's based on kind of like what the, the our country is going through as far as all the political turmoil right now. And I think that's translating into these the filmmakers kind of having the, the context to be kind of maybe it's an underlying issue. But it's dealing with without without getting too political and in your face. It's kind of subversive in in the way that they're presenting the films that at least were submitted to me this year. I mean, a lot of the the works are pretty edgy, and I would even say to a certain point more of um, violent tone overall, which is good because I you know uh, I'm not, not that I'm knocking like rom coms, but I think films need to be at least from what I'm seeing, they need to kind of step up their game. And and that's a big part of, you know, the programming for this year's festival. So would you say that kind of the themes when the festival started were more kind of these identity coming out films, and now you're seeing more shift of dealing with themes, LGBT themes, but more within a context of maybe genre filmmaking, where you're kind of dealing with issues, but in a roundabout sort of way instead of like right in your face. Yeah. You know, initially when when I first started taking submissions way back in 2004, most of the submissions were like documentary style films or pretty much se- severely low budget, maybe even family melodramas or comedies. That was what it seemed to be. That, that was what was in the forefront way back then. Now it's, um, there's more edge and more grit 
and more independent, more of an independent uh, vibe, especially now that a lot of these films seem to have decent budgets, whether they, whether, whether you, whether you think or not that they had a significant amount of money to produce the film, it's coming across that, that they did, especially with the, the wave of, you know, what, what you can, I mean, you can make a movie on an iPhone now and make it look really good. When you started programming, the films were, you know, kind of dealing with these identity issues. You programmed early on a horror film, Hellbent, as I think that was your first year here. Yeah, that was 2004. Correct. So you were looking for those kind of edgy films from the start. Yeah, and I think there was a big gap, like from 2004 until... I don't know, maybe two or three years ago where there wasn't any, there weren't any films that were like, I mean, there, there were a few that I can remember. I think we, we, we screened Socket was, an, was another one and Bite Marks and Pornography, a thriller. There were, there were a few that, that, that were submitted and, but there wasn't, I mean, I would actively search every LGBT film festival website and there just weren't any films that were being produced. There were shorts, there were a few fun shorts, but there weren't any features. I think, Maybe there wasn't a market for it then, but horror is a huge market. So I think whether it's horror or a suspense thriller or a mystery, I think audiences are drawn to that as far as as far as any kind of escape and you know, some kind of catharsis. I mean, I think the, the the way it's going now is that, I mean, last year I did a whole horror track and I had to turn away dozens of short films that I would have included if we had more time, if we were a longer festival for sure. And then this year we had the same amount of submissions pretty much but as far as short films maybe not as many horror genre thriller types but enough where i could put together at least you know seven or so and kind of sprinkle them throughout the festival and having an actual horror track this year and what have you found have been some of the particular challenges of putting together a lgbt film festival over the past couple decades you, you know, you want to make money. That's the bottom line. We need to make money to survive. So you have to include films that appeal to the masses. That's just a fact. So usually what, what I've done in the past for opening night, that, that, that tends to be more of a mainstream, you know, accessible to all audience type of film. And, you know, and then as far as the centerpieces, you want the centerpieces to be films that generate a lot of interest. And the same with the closing night film, you need to bookend it. And then what you can do is you can kind of sprinkle in throughout the festival the stuff that I really like to program. You just need to – it just needs to be even – you have to have you, – you know, I try to represent all genres at the festival. But I also like to screen a film or two that other festivals have never screened. So you kind of get something – you know, I'd, I'd prefer – if I had a choice to pick another mainstream film or something that's edgy that no one else is – that has selected I'm going to go with the, I'm going to go with that. You've programmed some really great dark gems in the past, a couple from Down Under like Drown and Down River. So you've been able to kind of ferret those films out <laughs> over the years. Yeah, I'm proud of I'm I'm still proud that 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 I I, I screened those two films. They they actually were really popular. They 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 won film out awards. They won a few audience awards. So that's the that's the kind of film that I that I want to show. I mean, they those films did well at other festivals, and I think initially because, you know, we're kind of in the middle of the year as far as festival wise, as far as selections go. So usually, you know, programmers talk, and when they see that you've you know selected a certain a film and they've never heard of it, it gets them to. So, you know, solicit the filmmaker to see a screener and then they book it and it just goes on and on and on. It's just a domino effect. 
This year, what films do you feel most excited about? I think I counted, you know, since it's our 20th anniversary, I think I wanted to bring back filmmakers that had screened films in the past at Film Out. And it's interesting to see, like, the films that they initially had screened at Film Out, whether it was 10, 12 years ago, to where they are now. And they've all grown tremendously as filmmakers. So, so I'm glad, kind of excited for the audiences to see how they've evolved as filmmakers. There's, like, nine film filmmake, films that we're going to be screening that, that have screened at Film Out in the past. And one is History of um, Gay Bars in San Diego. No, San Diego Gay Bar History, directed by Paul Detweiler. The Brass Rail, San Diego's oldest gay bar since 1958, is just one of over 135 gay bars and night spots that have served the San Diego lesbian and gay community since World War II. One of the ways that LGBT community was really formed in the United States was during World War II, people were able to leave biological families in some ways for the first time in the United States and move away from hometowns. After the war, many people, heterosexuals, went back to their hometowns. Many homosexuals did not. They stayed where they had been stationed to be able to actualize a life that would have been virtually impossible for many of them to live in the places they had come from. We have Deviant, directed by Ben Howard, Saltwater Baptism, directed by Russell Schaefer and Jared Callahan. That's going to be kind of a San Diego spotlight block. And then we have um, a film that kind of is kind of more of a bisexual film called Say Yes, directed by Stuart Wade. We have a pretty interesting thriller by Matt Montgomery, a drama called Golden Boy, directed by Stoney Westmoreland and produced by Stephen O'Connor. Wild Nights with Emily, which is Adam, directed by Madeline Olnack. The Jealous Sea, directed by Reed Waterer. And Still Waiting in the Wings, directed by Alan Broca. So your opening night film is going to be Ideal Home, which is kind of a nice coup for you. It's a, a mainstream film with some very recognizable stars in Steve Coogan and Paul Rudd. Oh, hello and good morning. Now, if you've never been invited to a ranchero breakfast... Well, it's like a gay Butch Cassidy, except not Butch. Oh, Manny, you old cockhound. I didn't see you there. Cut. You can't say cockhound on basic cable. Do you guys do this at home? Oh, no, we don't get along this well at home. But does this film, because your lead actors are not actually gay, but they are playing gay characters, does that raise any issues or concerns for you? No, I could care less. They're actors. They're doing their job. They, they, I mean, they both give really hilarious performances. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's really, there's a lot of sardonic wit in this film. You know, I think it was actually produced in a, a couple of years ago, and it's been kind of sitting on the shelf, and that's just, it's just now getting distribution. So I'm glad that we kind of were able to present this um, West Coast premiere to um, San Diego audiences. It's fun. It's the perfect opening night film. Well, I can't, I've got to say that anything with Steve Coogan and Paul Rudd Yeah, just when you see their interaction. They're a bickering gay couple. And what happened, basically the plot is that all of a sudden a 10-year-old um, shows up at a party that they're giving. And he announces that um, one uh, Steve Coogan's character is his grandfather. So then it's basically about their relationship with this 10-year-old. And basically the bottom line is about, is about being included and, um, and about family. But it's done really well. And Paul Rudd's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> and he looks hot with that beard. <laughs> and your closing night film is Anything. It's me from next door. Hi. Where are you from? He looks like Andy Griffith's sad brother. 
You just letters from my wife when I was away in college. How long were you married? 26 years. I got jumped. Why? Why? Because Hollywood is filled with criminals. How do people hurt each other this way? And this also has a transsexual character who's not played by a trans actor. And again, so do you find that this is something that's that reveals that Hollywood's more interested in making stories about this, even if they're not casting actors who are trans or gay? Or is it a concern for you that they're not turning to those kinds of actors to play these roles? It's not really a concern to me. I mean, Matt Bomer plays the trans character, and he um, is amazing in the, in the film. The bottom line is that you know these films are made, but you know they like I said earlier, they need to, they need to recoup their investments. So having a name attached to it is 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 hopefully going to bring people into the theater. I mean, there are some people that are already boycotting the film because there wasn't a trans actor playing that role, but I think people need to give the film a chance because. His performance is brilliant. I mean, this goes back. This, I mean, this. I can even think of a few years ago when people were a little bit upset when Jared Leto played a trans character in Dallas Buyers Club. But I mean, that was a great performance as well. But then you know there are films that that star trans actors, and we actually screened one at our opening night. Well, I think it was a few years ago. Was Boy Meets Girl. And that was amazing. So I just think, I just think, I mean, for, I mean, anything was kind of a, it's a studio film. So studio film wants to go with a name, but um, I'm not going to minimize his, his, his portrayal because the bottom line is he's an actor and that's what he does. He did a great job. There, there is a solution. I mean, for, for people that are, that are kind of disappointed that straight actors or actors that are playing um, gay characters or, or uh, trans characters, I, you know, I tell them, you know, it's just, it's an easy solution. Write write a screenplay. Write a start out writing a short film. If you have more ambition, write a write a feature film, and then crowdsource it. Raise the money. Hire some people, and you could produce your own film, and then it could be the film that you want to see with the with the actors that you want um, represented. I think that's happening. So that's what I'm telling people. You know, make your own art. It's not that difficult. I mean, initially, you know, you write a decent screenplay, find some people to to um, to fund it for you, and then you crowdsource it. Come up with the rest of the money. It might take you a year or two, but I think um, the payoff will be what you want to see, and 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 that's and that's rewarding. So that that's my advice. Do you feel that a film festival is kind of the place where people should come and just be a little more experimentational, just buy a festival pass and kind of sample a little bit of everything? Yeah, you know, I'm still amazed. Here we are at our 20th anniversary, and there are still some people in this town in the LGBT community that never that don't even know that there's an LGBT film festival. I'm always kind of baffled by that. But I think to, to come to a festival, you're supporting art, you're supporting film as art, you can see films that normally would never screen in San Diego. I think we're, we're screening 45 films this year, and I would I would say maybe maybe six to eight of them will eventually at some point play in San Diego over the next year, probably more so the mainstream ones. So this is your chance to um, to see um, some films that you, you normally wouldn't be exposed to, and you get to see them with an audience and enjoy it collectively, and you can drink in the theater. And, you know, there's a lot of – we have a lot of good shorts this year. We have two – there were so many shorts submitted this year um, that I put in on um, the Best of LGBT Shorts Volume 1 and 2. 
Well, and shorts are really something that if you don't come see them at a festival, you probably aren't going to find them anywhere else. No, you won't unless you actively search for them on YouTube somewhere after, you know, a year or so. So I just interviewed Joe Ferrelli, who was key to launching this LGBT film festival. So what has been your relationship kind of taking over from Joe and and building on what he started? Joe was my mentor way back in the early 2000s when, you know, Joe started to film out, I think, in the late 90s and mid-90s. I can't remember the dates. Ended up interviewing with Krista Page and Joe Ferrelli and ended up being the volunteer coordinator initially for the first few years. And that's how I... um, met and worked with with Joe. Then Joe decided to move uh, to, to New York or New Jersey, Buffalo. And I was like, oh, well, what's going to, what's the future of film out with Krista and I decided to stay and some of the board members. So then I just kind of, I took over the programming. I just basically remembered what I had, what I had watched Joe do. You know, Joe and I text each other a few times a week and he's really, he, he, he's a film geek and you know, he like he. We kind of were on the same page as as far as far as what we like. It's, our programming choices are pretty similar, and so no, I owe everything to Joe. Wouldn't be here without him, or the or the festival for that matter. And Joe has a unique perspective on film, I think. And do you think his personality has colored the way Film Hout has grown as a festival that makes it in some ways different from other LGBT festivals around the country? Yeah, I mean, Joe's, Joe's flavor was what initially kind of formed my, my my flavor. And so, you know, there of course there are some films that he likes that I hate and, and some films that... I love that he hates, and he's like, Michael, why are you programming this? And vice versa, but his flavor is definitely still, I mean, he's the essence of film out, and we just kind of, uh, Caleb and I have pretty much just taken taken that on and, you know, tried to remain the, to remain with his original vision. I mean, it's grown for sure. It's hard to believe that um, I've been doing this, this is my 14th year, 14th year as program director and 17th year with film out. Crazy. <laughs> <laughs> And do you have any kind of final words about what the future might hold or anything about this year? You know, a lot depends on this year. We're, we're hoping to, to have a kick-ass festival. But the bottom line is to produce something like Film Out, even though we're a smaller festival, this year we've expanded to four days. We're usually just a weekend. We used to be seven, but it was just it's outrageously expensive. It's cost about $100,000 to produce this festival for four days. And it's, it's, it's a full-time job with very like minimal like bottom of the barrel pay. So it's a labor of love for mostly everybody that's involved. So I think you know whether we when continue or we take a break and we'll be back and it hasn't really we haven't really made a decision yet as far as what the future for film out is going to be, but we're going to base it off of this year. And um, my goal ideally would be to kind of like have a little bit of restructuring to kind of beef up our board, um, to re-strategize venue options, to maybe expand to, to more than a few days, maybe do a few fundraisers, do some community outreach. It's all going to just going to depend how the um, festival plays out this year. That was Film Out programmer Michael McQuiggan. My favorite film from this year's upcoming film out is a short horror tale called The Quiet Room from Sam Weinman. I let him describe the film without any spoilers. Yeah, my film is a psych ward horror film. It's about a guy who, by not leaving a note when he attempts suicide, inadvertently triggers a psych ward urban legend. So have you heard it yet or not? Heard what? The screams. 
from the quiet room. Psych ward solitary. That's just your PTSD, man. It's not Hattie. Who's Hattie? Hopeless Hattie. Just your run-of-the-mill psych ward demon. Because it's, it's his first day, okay? You go easy on him. So you guys think this place is haunted? Mm-hmm. Yep. Not a chance. Dude, for your own good, leave a cup of water by your bed. She doesn't like water. And he has to kind of find the will to live to overcome this demon, as well as his own personal demons. So your film has a really interesting, I don't know if I should call it creature, ghost, demon. Where did the idea for this come from? Yeah, I, well, so I'm totally fascinated by urban legends. Before I was ever old enough for horror movies, Bloody Mary scared the crap out of me. And so I wanted to create an urban legend, much like the thing that haunted me in my childhood. So I gave Hattie a backstory and kind of ran with it from there. Uh, There's a little bit more to it than that. Also, our film addresses issues of mental health, and I wanted her rules to specifically operate like the rules of depression. As somebody who has had my own mental health battles, I wanted to accurately portray uh, what it would be like to externalize that battle in the form of a creature. And so that's kind of how Hattie was born. So the creature we see is something you saw in your nightmares because she's pretty creepy. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Um, Actually, you know, without getting too much into it, one sequence with her was literally entirely a nightmare I had. (laughs) And, uh, And I took it and made it into a scene, and it's one of my favorite scenes. But yes, well, the, also the way that we did the creature design had a lot to do with a super talented artist, uh, Lainey Chantal. She was a finalist on Face Off. She's done makeup for Marilyn Manson and Rob Zombie. And I came to her with Hattie's backstory, which doesn't really appear in the movie because I, I like to keep things, you know, I don't like to over-explain. So as long as the backstory exists, it's between me and her, and then we kind of share it with the actor, and we put it into the makeup. And that's how we achieved Hattie's creepy look. There's actually a full story in every layer she's got. Does this mean we're going to get like a prequel at some point? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I'm working on a feature, actually. And I think that there's a lot more to her. And what I'm really excited about, as far as the short goes, is it tells a complete story. I feel like I can sit down and watch that and leave satisfied. But I think there's a lot more to it. And so that's what I've been working on. Now, the festival that you're going to be screening your film out here in San Diego is Film Out. And recently, the programmer, Michael McQuiggan, who is a big fan of horror, felt that he finally was getting enough submissions to kind of do horror blocks or to kind of put a focus on programming gay horror. Do you feel that there has been some sort of recent like surge in in gay filmmakers or or films that deal with gay characters um, entering into that kind of genre of horror? I think that there has been such a huge gay following when it comes to horror for so long. And a lot of times we've been, existed behind the scenes. We've been, you know, the screenwriters behind Scream or, uh, you know, a number of like late 90s films that I'm a huge fan of. <laughs> And so we've been there all along the way, and the fandom has been there. But as far as filmmaking goes, I think that with kind of technological advancements, filmmaking is more accessible now to anybody. And so 
now that the tools are kind of within our reach, we can tell more specific stories and have them reach a bigger audience, especially with the Internet. I mean, our, we dropped our trailer last week, and it got 22,000 hits in six days. And I think that prior to this, something like that is kind of unheard of, but now we're able to reach one another and share the work that we do. I think it's a really exciting time to be making film, especially with the marginalized characters that are beginning to appear in genre. You know, just because gay and lesbian characters haven't really cracked mainstream genre yet, I do think that it is beginning to happen or that it's just, or just on the verge of it. And that's the thing that independent filmmakers like myself are kind of feeling and want to be a part of. Well, the other thing that's happening this year is Filmat is celebrating its 20th anniversary, which, of course, makes us all a little bit reflective about where the festival started and, you know, where Mm. it's going. And having covered it for 20 years, what I see, and I see this also across other festivals like our Asian Film Festival, our Latino Film Festival, and it seems to be that when these festivals started, they kind of started with the sense of wanting to highlight films that dealt with identity because these were kind of underserved groups. And now it seems like there's a bigger influx of kind of genre filmmaking, filmmaking where both, whether you're gay, Latino, Asian, doesn't matter on a certain level. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I I get a lot of comments about that specifically with The Quiet Room because we don't have, you know, it doesn't deal with a coming out story. It doesn't deal, none of the conflict has to do with, none of the surface level conflict has to do with our lead being queer. They're just characters who happen to be queer in this space. I'm hoping that, you know, while I think that there is a place for all kinds of stories, especially stories pertaining specifically to identity, I think that genre is an opportunity to allow access to a more mainstream audience, giving queer representation without necessarily, you know, pushing people out. Although I do think that specificity is, you know, where we all connect. So let me ask you, in terms of defining horror for you, do you prefer the term queer horror or gay horror? Because that's something I've come into differences about in terms of defining that horror. I personally prefer queer horror, mainly because for me, gay horror is so specific to one aspect of the queer umbrella. And I think that when it comes to gay and LGBT, it it kind of had a lot of times to me, that movement has to do more with assimilation, where something queer has to do with challenging the status quo and really coming for a political or (laughs) just a shakedown of what it is that we've seen again and again. So for me, what I'm doing, I feel like it's very queer. How difficult was it for you to get this film made? Uh, that's a good question. Because I made this film at, I made this film as my thesis film at Chapman University. It was something that I had to fundraise almost entirely myself. And there were a lot of voices along the way that maybe weren't so supportive. But I do have to say that once we finished and people could see what it looked like on the other side, the support was there, ultimately. As far as the actual filmmaking aspect of it, it was a, a nine-day shoot, and it was super intense, and we did all of our effects practically, and we had some really great cast so, uh, with really busy schedules. So all of that culminated. I mean, it was, it was really difficult, but everybody loved it and wanted to be there for it. So that really helped. And now you said you're working on a feature. So did this short really help you to kind of jumpstart a feature film? Oh, yeah. 
<laughs> um, this short, I've been really fortunate. Um, this short got a lot of attention before it even hit the festival circuit. So it allowed me to get some reps and uh, begin taking meetings and kind of kickstart what's next for me career-wise. And now I'm excited because, you know, as of just a couple months ago, we had our world premiere and we're, it's beginning to make its way across the country at different festivals. And, uh, and I can finally share it with audiences. So I get to have that piece of it too. So is horror a genre that you want to stay working? I mean, a lot of people will start their careers in horror and kind of because it's a it's sometimes an easy way to get in. But some people are in horror because they absolutely love the genre. So which kind of are you? I'm that guy. <laughs> the second one. I'm I'm talking to you in a living room. I'm walking across my shining carpet. I'm in front of my horror movie posters. This is I live and breathe horror. I know that um, a lot of people, it's, it's a great place to make a start for a lot of filmmakers because horror can be done inexpensively um, and it's a little bit more forgiving of a low budget. I understand that. But for me, what's exciting about horror is it's always been a space where characters who we see fight impossible forces have to overcome something beyond themselves. And that inspires me. So that fight that's just built into the genre is something that you know, inspired me a lot as a kid and growing up and giving me that kind of strength. And it really excites me to be able to create that, especially in a space where I get to introduce queer characters. Um, having a mainstream queer film is 100% my goal within the horror community. So yeah, I'm going to keep working at it. Um, I don't see myself doing other things, but you know, I always keep an open mind, but I just want to be the best at this one thing. Well, and also what I like about the film is that the horror is twofold in the sense that there's this kind of supernatural, demonic, I don't know how you eventually want to define it, but there's this kind of uh, particular kind of horror. But there's also this very real world horror of someone who is in a psych ward. Yes, absolutely. I think that being in a space like that is already terrifying, whether or not this creature that he's facing is, you know, in his head or not. It's dealing with elements uh, of life that I think that would terrify us all as is. That's why this story to me was so important to tell. And what's nice about your film, and I'm not going to give anything away, but I, I will say that one thing that's interesting about it is there's a lot of very kind of brightly lit scenes. And like part of Part of the creepiness on a certain level is just being in this psych ward where everything has this certain kind of sterile quality. But you also kind of introduce some of the horror elements within brightly lit shots where you can see everything. You're not like hiding stuff in shadows. You're, you know, having necessarily having stuff just leap out of the dark at people, which are kind of the tropes. I love that you said that. <laughs> I absolutely, I mean, because I think that it's, Leaping out of the dark is terrifying, and I think that we've seen a lot of that. I think that what is scary to me about being in a hospital where you're always being watched is what is exposed. And so in these brightly lit scenes or these scenes where a horror is introduced um, and it's right there in your face and you can see it, um, if it's done well, I think it can have an equally terrifying effect. But uh, more importantly, be right in there with the theme. And you mentioned that the the elements of the character being gay is not, like, in the forefront of the story. But how do you feel, then, as a filmmaker, having your film shown as part of an LGBT festival? Is that something that you 
enjoy being a part of, or do you kind of want to eschew those kind of labels as you move forward? I love it. I embrace it. <laughs> I want all the labels. <laughs> I want. Um, I I see this very much as a queer horror film. For me, I, I what I love about it is that the horror comes from the space that he's in and the interactions with people that he has, um, and doesn't necessarily come from something that leans on a trope, um, or the tropes that we're working with happen to be tropes within the horror space. And so, um, I really do embrace that. And I love being at both horror festivals and queer festivals. Although I have to say that if I had to pick an audience to watch it with, it would definitely be an audience within a queer festival, just because there are certain jokes that are so specific and just so for our community (laughs) that I love hearing people laugh at them. I like the way that people lean in and whisper when they see one of our drag queens, you know, or a recognizable actor, because we have a couple of actors who do um, gay indie films, you know, and that's something that's going to be unique to our audience. So there's definitely, there are some, I don't want to call them Easter eggs, but there are some things in the film that are just for this specific community. Um, Just as there are a few things that are just for the horror community, too. And what kind of influence did you have in terms of horror? I mean, who are the directors or who are the, what are the films that kind of influenced you the most? I think as a director, Wes Craven, 100%, <laughs> especially what he was doing in the late 90s, and with Nightmare on Elm Street, actually, uh, really influenced me. Nightmare on Elm Street is a huge influence, um, as you might be able to see from some of Hattie, just the way she presents herself. But in general, I love 80s slashers. And although this is a very supernatural film, we took a lot from the slasher genre in the way that we presented the scares. And so um, I watched a lot of... Uh, a lot of uh, creepy, kind of slow-moving films from that era uh, when we were putting this together. But combining it with more modern jump scares so that we have a little bit of both, like that slow burn element, but also when things hit the fan, it just really goes. And for you, what is the importance of being able to showcase your film at festivals? Is that something that is very helpful to a, a filmmaker when they're starting out? I think that showing it at a festival allows me to to share it with an audience. And while it may not directly affect, you know, the, the feature that I'm working on or something like that, what it does do is it allows me to see how things go with people and, and really just to, to give me the ability to connect with an audience. I think that all of us are making something so that it can be seen. And being at a festival is kind of the payoff. You know, it's, it's, that, uh, it's that opening night. Um, and it charges, I know it it fills me with the kind of energy that allows me to continue creating. And I definitely know it's the same with my cast because so many of our cast members have shown up to screening after screening and festival after festival, just because this is a film that is so fun to watch with people just out loud in the audience. People gasp. I've heard people scream or laugh at all the jokes. It's just one of those things that it's so interactive and it, it just, fills me with an excitement that I can't even, I never could have imagined. Um, I love watching The Quiet Room with people. Well, I work with a horror film festival, and I also program films. And I have to say that when you program a horror film and you actually have like a couple of screamers in the audience, people who are really susceptible to the jump scares or to the scares that are in the film, it elevates the level of fun of watching that film (laughs) so much. I, whenever I have friends who apologize prematurely, like, I just want to let you know I don't watch horror movies. It always makes me scream. I'm like, you're going to sit right next to me. 
because <laughs> it's like watching a horror film in 3D. Well, and it's also kind of because as someone who watches a lot of horror, I get kind of jaded. And even though yep. I can appreciate scares in a film, I'm not one who tends to jump and scream. And it's so nice to sit t- next to someone who does feel it like that kind of visceral level. And I'm going like, ah, oh, I remember what that was like when I was like a teenager. <laughs> Yes. And I actually think that might be why I love screening at LGBT festivals so much, because a lot of those audience, there aren't, as you mentioned before, there aren't a ton of queer horror picks out there. And while while it is on the rise, you know, most of the um, festivals have me in blocks with just, you know, the standard fare. So, you know, somebody will go from crying to a really emotional, you know, moment in a film to jumping into the quiet room. And I don't think they know what they're getting into. You know, we're halfway into this movie and people are screaming and jumping out of their seats because they're not here for horror. And I love it. As I mentioned, since the festival is having its 20th anniversary, I'm going to ask each of the filmmakers about, like, in looking at 20 years of kind of LGBT cinema, do you see anything to you that stands out in terms of where it's going or... Uh, you know, how festivals showcase it? Is there kind of some observation you've made? Something that I'm noticing is uh, is something you brought up earlier, which is entries to genre. Um, I think that we are moving into a space that allows for filmmakers to make things within different genres. Like, I hope to be around to see a gay superhero movie. I want to see something in every genre. I was just, you know, at a screening of Love, Simon a couple months ago, and hearing the audience react in such a big way to this, you know, rom-com, essentially, it was pretty groundbreaking. And I think that we're heading into that territory. And it excites me because for me, I just want to make more horror, um, but specifically horror for my community. Thank you very much for taking some time to talk to me. And I look forward to your film coming out here to San Diego for Film Out. Hey, and thanks for asking such awesome questions. <laughs> that was so fun. That was filmmaker Sam Weinman talking about his short, The Quiet Room. Matthew Montgomery is having the world premiere of his feature film, Devil's Path, at Film Out. He explains what it's about. Yeah, so it's uh, a really simple film about these two guys who meet on a hiking trail uh, while one of them is looking for his missing brother. And through a series of circumstances, they end up getting chased off into the woods. And um, then from there, things kind of start to unravel. And uh, yeah, I don't want to give too much away. (laughs) I know. That's the problem with some of these films. Where did the story idea for this come from? What was kind of the germ of inspiration? I was working on a short film uh, a few years ago when I was still doing, uh, when I was still in my grad school program. And I knew that I wanted to sort of um, kind of investigate character development through a story about two characters primarily. And so I had kind of, and I knew that I wanted to do it in this particular genre. And so I actually developed this story as part of a thesis project. I did it like a producing packet thesis. And then after I graduated, I ended up developing it into a feature and then shooting it. And the film is not overtly a horror film, but there's definitely no. tension and and like thriller elements to it. Is this a, a genre that you enjoy working in? Oh, yeah. I'm a huge uh, Hitchcock fan. Like he's my 
go-to filmmaker that I always watch. And so for me, the thriller genre is definitely resonates more with me creatively than any other genre. And I like the, sure, I like the suspense and everything, but I also kind of like how information gets doled out throughout the journey of the story. So for me, that's very exciting and very sort of rewarding as a filmmaker. Well, one thing that Hitchcock also likes to play around with is this notion of kind of like the wrong man or, you know, when you're figuring out a mystery of like who is the real, who's the real person that you should be afraid of or worried about. And your film kind of plays with certain elements of that, too, and and also using kind of a, a sense of, you know, who is the is the narrator we have kind of the most reliable person or not? Yeah, exactly. I I really wanted to play around with both me and Stephen Tordokas, who is the lead and also the co-writer of the of the movie with me. We really kind of wanted to explore this kind of back and forth of you know who, who throughout the throughout the story you start to kind of have this perspective of who's the good guy and who's the bad guy, and that changes. And we sort of really wanted to play around with that. It's a lot more difficult than you think when you're sort of developing the story and, and trying to sort of stick to having a protagonist and an antagonist. And But, yeah, we really kind of wanted to play around with that, especially because the film really tackles this theme of perspective and how uh, a person's perspective can you know, affect the choices that they make and hence the consequences that come with those choices and so on and so forth. The woods have always been where I felt most comfortable. Safe. It's society and people that terrify me. We hurt, terrorize, and kill each other without a second thought. For reasons that are meaningless. In nature, animals only kill to survive. This place was our chance to leave everything behind, to start our own path. And what is it about the thriller genre that you feel allows you to explore those ideas kind of in the most either effective or interesting way for you as a, an artist? I guess the thriller genre for me is, I mean, it, it's, it's, it, to me, it's, it's an exciting genre. Like it's, it's unlike, unlike the horror genre, which I, I, I like the horror genre. And a lot of people ask me if this is a horror film and I, you know, I say no. And I, I understand because the title is devil's path. A lot of times people think that it might be a horror film off the, you know, off the bat, but, but, um, with the thriller genre, I feel like there's more of a delving into the layers of character and their psychology and that, you know, being allowed to, uh, to, to be able to do that and have that avenue, I think is, um, is for me the most effective part of storytelling is having that uh, ability. And the film, although although it's not really horror, but there are some horrific things that characters kind of have in their backgrounds or in their past. And, sure. And so 
layering that kind of thing into a story where it's stuff that we don't necessarily see but are revealed, I mean, these kind of like darker tones, was that something that also interested you? Yeah, very much so. I mean, as the information is sort of slowly kind of comes to the surface for the viewer, it's kind of worked the same way for us as the writers and the and the filmmakers. You know, we sort of started out with this character and this sort of essence of of, of of who Noah is, which who is the main character. And then we sort of like layered and layered and layered upon that. So, it, you know, I, it, it's sort of this journey for the, it's the journey, it's a journey for the writer, I feel like, just as much as it is for the, uh, for the viewer. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And one thing that I find interesting is that in covering film out for the past 20 years and seeing the kinds of films that they showcase and the, the kinds of films that are submitted, um, it seems like films like yours, and there've been some other ones like it too. It seems like the LGBT filmmakers that are submitting stuff. It seems like there are more films that are genre films, like that filmmakers feel a little more freedom to kind of explore genre now that they've they've kind of like the festivals have kind of moved past dealing with a, a lot of the films that are just about. LGBT identity or about coming out or, you know, themes that are very specific to that. And now, you know, there seems to be a bigger influx of films that are just genre films where a character happens to be gay or a filmmaker happens to be gay. Yes, yes. I'm so glad that you brought that up, actually, because for me, the movie, it's I wanted it to be very kind of secondary what their sexual orientation is. You know, it's just sort of this background of, of who the characters are. The story's about something entirely different. And, you know, I've done a lot of films in the past uh, that were, you know, very issue-based, I guess you could say, and about, you know, gay identity and, and that kind of thing. And those are important, important movies and important stories to tell. And I'm glad that we now have a, a space to be able to tell those stories. But I also think that it really says how far we've come now that we have these stories that are coming out that are, you know, more genre-related stories that are sort of a little offbeat now. And they aren't so much necessarily about trying to talk about a particular message or, or issue, but more to sort of entertain and kind of just be compelling and that kind of thing. Well, it also seems that it's kind of freeing for an artist because it allows you to now depict gay characters that don't have to be as positive or as much of role models that you can kind of explore darker aspects to a character who happens to be gay. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, but to be perfectly honest with you, it is something that, you know, I was very aware of when we were sort of creating the characters because, you know, they're not exactly, you know, there are aspects of their characters that one may may think of as unlikable or sort of, you know, find a judgment against them for one reason or another. And so that did sort of concern me as a storyteller that like, you know, how, how is this going to be portrayed? Are people going to feel a certain way about how I, as a filmmaker are, you know, I'm portraying these characters who are also gay. Cause I do feel that I have a responsibility to that as a filmmaker as well. But, you know, for me, it's more important to, to sort of hold closer to the integrity of the project and the characters that I've created and be as true to them as possible. Well, it seems like what what the goal should be is that 
the characters are believable and well-rounded and complex as opposed to just are they positive or negative? Exactly, exactly, because that's human nature, you know? Mm -hmm. And do you feel that kind of this freeing up of filmmakers to be able to cover kind of a, a broader range of topics and a broader range of genres is part of what's allowing you to do that is that technology has made it easier to make films and on a certain level to distribute them? Yes, absolutely. I mean, it wasn't like this, you're, you know, uh, 10 years ago, you know, where, or, or, or it, it was just sort of starting out, I guess, maybe at that time. But like, I feel like right now we have the ability and the resources to be able to tell stories that, you know, with uh, uh, a lower budget than maybe most sort of bigger, you know, bigger studio pictures and um, still have it be not only interesting and compelling and all of that and all of that thing, but also feel like you're watching a, an actual movie. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and it also seems like, you know, if you really have a burning desire to be a filmmaker now, that you could literally go out with your cell phone, make a movie, put it on a YouTube channel, and have it available to the public. It may not be able to make you, you know, a career out of it or a living off of it, but if you you really have that bug that says, you know, I've got to make a film, it seems like it's you have a lot more options right now. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's really important, which is why I, I also think that it's a really great thing that there are more programs for youth filmmakers and, you know, filmmakers who are who are just starting out. You know, the the little young ones that are coming out that are telling their stories because now they have the opportunity to tell their stories in a way that we didn't when I was younger. They have these re the resources and the technology is now available to them to be able to do that. And I think that's a, a really great thing. We need more storytellers in the world. And I understand this is going to be a world premiere at Film Out? It is. It is, which is very, very exciting because Film Out, I had, I was just talking to my husband about this, that uh, one of our uh, earlier, one of our first dates was actually at Film Out. I had him come with me to the film festival because I had two movies that were playing there at the time, and this was uh, 10 years ago. And so here I am now. Yeah. Well, since you came to film out 10 years ago, for you, how does the festival seem to have changed in any way or have they? Well, I feel like it's bigger. Like there are movies that are bigger in scope to me that I that are um, inclusive of the gay community that are now being shown. Um, I, which I think is, you know, really, really, really cool. Like, I, you know, there was a time when, you know, just like when we were talking about a few minutes ago about representation, you know, there was a time, you know, 10 years ago or so that our represent, you know, gay representation in cinema was not, not that great. And so, you know, a lot of the, the films that were uh, at Film Out and other gay and lesbian film festivals were you know, much smaller, sort of not really uh, um, financially supported films that, you know, we had to sort of make on our own. And now you're seeing these much sort of bigger projects that are coming in from like studios and stuff or smaller independent uh, production companies. And um, and I think that's uh, that's kind of an interesting trajectory to sort of see that happening. 
That was feature filmmaker Matthew Montgomery. His film Devil's Path has its world premiere June 8th at Film Out San Diego. Chris Phillips directed the short film Night Shift. Hi, this is Luke Anderson in 417. It looks like I mistook someone else's bag for mine. Could you send up the bellman that was at the desk when I checked in? I think his name was Max. Yes. Thank you. Night Shift is about two guys who we see at the very beginning. We're not real sure how they know each other, and they have a really intense physical confrontation. And through the course of the short, we start to find out how they know each other, what their history is, what their connection is. Yeah, so I'm I'm excited to see how the audience responds to it uh, without giving too much away about it. How do you feel about your film screening at an LGBT film festival? Do you mind that it gets grouped like that, or would you prefer also being able to show it at um, other festivals? Oh, I would love to show it at other festivals, but I'm, I don't know. For some reason, there are some filmmakers, some play, and I certainly started out in playwriting, and there are some playwrights, too, that I've heard that seem to have a, an issue. They kind of chafe whenever anybody labels their piece a gay play or a gay film or whatever. I have never had that problem. That is sort of the well that up to this point I've um, sort of swam in. And I love being at the gay theater festivals, the gay film festivals. It's always been very community-oriented for me. And this story in particular, it's like, I don't, I certainly think that a, a larger audience, a more uh, mainstream audience could get something from it. They can see it's it's not so exotic <laughs> in terms of the relationship that they can't respond to it. But I've never had a problem with that because for me, it's, it's a really, um, it's giving back to a community that's given me so much. And that's certainly, um, they're the community that inspires a lot of my writing. So I've never had a problem with it. And where did the idea for the story come from? Well, the idea for Night Shift actually came from a, a few different places. It's, um, the original inspiration for it is a 1974 film by Liliana Cavani called The Night Porter that um, I'm not sure if a whole lot of people have seen. I think a lot of film aficionados are familiar with it. It was a really controversial film. And um, the plot of that is completely different from what Night Shift is doing. But what um, interested me about it was the idea of having two people that have this sort of really challenging history and seeing them come together in a really contained space and sort of negotiating what that history was about and how it impacted them and their lives from then on. Um, and that story has always stuck in my head. And I thought, well, what would what would be the modern-day equivalent of that? And this was a heterosexual relationship that was in that particular film. And I thought, well, what would the dynamics be if this were a gay relationship? And when I started thinking about that, then I realized that what I wanted to tell a story about was sort of intimacy between men and what that looks like and uh, how that feels and what's the difference between a physical intimacy versus an emotional intimacy, uh, feminine power versus masculine power, external power versus magnetic power. All those dynamics kind of came into this piece, and I wanted to do it in 12 minutes without a whole lot of dialogue. (laughs) That was sort of the challenge I set for myself. So how is it going from the stage where the written word is kind of is literally like the word of God uh, Mm -hmm. and going into film where 
A lot of times. I mean, when you're making an independent film, I think screenplays are much more important. But, you know, in, in terms of like Hollywood and, and kind of this bigger picture, screenwriting d- doesn't tend to be elevated as much as a playwright. And I'm just wondering how how was it for you to kind of move from the playwriting world to the screenwriting world and to a, a, a medium where it's much more visual in the sense of you have the control of telling the viewer kind of what they're looking at in a scene that you don't have on the stage? Um, I think that, honestly, I haven't written a play in, well, I wrote a play last year for a benefit, but before that, I hadn't really written a play in about two or three years. I'd really been focusing on writing television and film scripts, and I found it very liberating because I like ambiguity. And I like it when an audience, it leans forward in their seats and is trying to figure out what's going on based on how the characters are moving around each other. And if you notice in Night Shift, um, if you've seen it, there there's a ton of close-ups. And I really like studying my actors' faces to, to kind of get the ambiguity of what's going on. And I feel like that really freed me up. I don't have to... Uh, be so literal as far as what's going on in film. You you can pick and choose what the audience sees. You can linger on a moment that ne- that an audience wouldn't necessarily linger on in theater because there's so much to watch and the audience is picking and choosing what they're watching on stage. And so if you want to make a point, you've got to say it in the dialogue. In a film, it's very different. You can say make your point with a visual, and you get to guide the audience in that way. And also I think it was, um, I had a great experience in theater in working with actors that were incredibly expressive with their faces. And so I got to know what an actor would be capable of expressing where they wouldn't need any dialogue to do it. And the more I talked to Billy and Dustin before we started shooting, the more I even slashed, I mean, this, the version that you see on film is actually less dialogue than what was in the shooting script because I realized, oh, we don't need that. We don't need him to say that. That's coming through in his eyes. We don't need, we don't need it. Um, so that was really liberating, I think, in a sense. And I really got uh, um, the next short I want to make. I want to go even further with the visuals. I want to, I want to have more of a, uh, a stamp on it in terms of what the what it actually looks like, you know. So I, I'm really loving it. I'm loving this side of it. Uh, Film Out San Diego is celebrating its 20th anniversary this year, so it it makes everyone a little bit reflective that are working on the festival. And so I'm wondering, as a filmmaker and as somebody who just watches films, what kind of changes have you seen in the past couple decades that have either made an impression on you or that you kind of want to point out in terms of LGB cinema? Sure. Oh, wow. I've I've seen a a ton of changes. I think the most substantive change that I've seen and the one that I'm most excited about uh, when I see filmmakers like Dee Rees or Andrew Haig or, you know, Sean Baker stuff, um, Andrea Arnold, one of my favorite filmmakers, you know, um, anytime they're working in uh, with LGBT characters, it's much more about showing LGBT characters as human beings. They don't have to be affirming. They don't have to be perfect. They don't have to be a voice for the generation. Um, yeah, gay people are still touchy about their images on screen. I think I, I had a conversation with another writer friend of mine about how, how sensitive we can be about those kinds of depictions. But I think that certainly in the last couple of decades since, say, the uh, American Queer as Folk hit out here, um, I think that we've 
chilled out a little bit, and we're much more willing to see um, our LGBT characters as human beings. They don't have to be perfect. They don't have to be positive. They don't have to be upstanding members of the community. They can actually be human. Um, and that, to me, is such a creatively inspiring change because I don't have to think about – I mean, I never really did in the first place anyway. My characters are kind of just, you know, warts and all. But um, there's a lot less um, sensitivity about that now. I think we're – because we are being so visible in the, in the culture in, as, at large, I think that um, as a writer and director, I, I feel a lot more freedom to let them just be messy you know, which is always a lot more exciting to watch anyway. That was filmmaker Chris Phillips, who directed Night Shift. Next up is Stan Madre, who directed the short film Hookup. It's uh, boy meets boy. Not actually. Um, Adam, who is our lead character, is just looking for love in all the quick places, and he's uh, found a hookup. And it uh, unravels itself from there. A number of films that have screened at Film Out, and especially a number of horror films, have used that kind of the hookup, grinder, meetup as the starting right. point for a story. So it seems like a kind of a rich area because you might be going someplace you've never been, being with someone you have no idea who they are. It seems like perfect material. Well, you know, it's interesting because we're so used to putting our information out there to people, whether it's on social media, Twitter, Facebook, all of that. And the same thing with our when we meet someone, whether you meet someone online, whether you meet someone via your phone, with one of these dating apps, whether it's uh, you know Tinder or Grinder or all the myriad of ones out there, uh, we kind of act impulsively when love or sex is involved. The genesis for this is that uh, suppose that you act impulsively and think maybe there could be more to this, and then there is definitely more to it, but it's maybe not the direction you had intended. So did this story stem from an experience or, you know, the, the idea for it, did it stem from something that you had experienced online yourself or somebody talked to you about that led you to kind of take it one step further for the story? Well, I will tell you two things is I am uh, I'm in my 50s. So my version of dating in my 20s was not social media. It was very different because you just met people. Uh, and the amount of places and things that I did and strange places I woke up in my 20s, um, doing strange things to strange people was always uh, kind of uh, interesting. So now being as it's all done on social media and, and done with all the dating apps, I have a variety of friends of mine who have said very quickly how impulsively they have acted and uh, that they've just, you know, chatted with somebody online short period of time. Next thing you know, they're meeting and they're going at it, both straight and gay that have told me this. Um, so that's kind of where the genesis of it came from is that's my experience was when I was younger, but the experience now certainly is, uh, uh, very, very quick for, for people today to walk into danger without knowing it. Film out where you're going to be screening your film is now turning 20 years old. And so mm -hmm. looking back on the kinds of films they've shown, the film programmer, Michael McQuiggan, only recently programmed a horror block last year because he felt it was the first uh -huh. year that he really got enough submissions where he could make a, a really solid block of uh, gay mm -hmm. horror films. And I'm just wondering if you feel like there's that it now seems like a time where LGBT filmmakers can kind of start depicting characters that not, are not necessarily role models, where they're not necessarily making films about identity, where they can go into genre mm -hmm. filmmaking a little more fully. Do you feel like you have a, a little more freedom to do that or support to do that? 
That's the great part about it because our lives have changed very drastically in the last probably five to seven years. And the type of film you would make four or five years ago or six years ago or 10 years ago or certainly 20 years ago was very different when you were dealing with uh, LGBTQ issues because it was very, very, very different. It was uh, films as far back as in and out where it's just about you know, being mainstream and, and, and normalized, the birdcage, all of these things 20 years ago, you know, those films are 20 years old right now. They don't stand up. They're great films, but you couldn't make them now because, you know, we have gay marriage now. So what's the purpose of a film about gay marriage? Because it's, unless it's a relationship, uh, we're there. You know, we're pretty much there. And uh, that's what's changed so dramatically is where do gay and lesbian stories go next? And the one thing I had not seen, several things I had not seen on screen was certainly the depiction of the um, of the lovemaking between these two gentlemen when they get to that point, as we can guess that there is, and also the fact that, uh, you know, what if it's a little more twisted and a little more bent storyline? I'm wondering, is horror something you've always been attracted to, or is it something that you just thought for this particular story was something you wanted to experiment with? You know, Beth, I'm a huge horror film fan. I have been. Uh, I, I could watch, even it's a style, but carry a thousand times over. Horror films, I love to be scared out of my seat. I love to be jumped. I love when all these things happen. What I really, really like is the scariest thing to me isn't the monster that's, you know, coming from wherever. To me, the scariest thing is the guy down the hall. <laughs> You know, the person you know that is a completely different twisted mind inside than who you know, that to me is scarier than anything. The scariest thing I ever remember seeing in my 20s was I watched the film Helter Skelter, which was about Charles Manson and how he manipulated the women and the men into doing his bidding and killing and all the stuff. And that scared me so bad because that's, that's the guy down the hall. That could be the real person you come in contact to and how quickly you could go from your normal life to being completely engulfed in someone else's um horrific mind. So were there any directors or films that you felt really influenced you in terms of how you made this particular short? Oddly enough, and uh, not to carry too much of the story, until I didn't realize how much it influenced me, but once we were done, American Psycho had stepped very heavily in my head, and I didn't realize until we had made the film, and then I came back and looked, and I went, oh, this is interesting, this is interesting, because it's a, a twisted mind, which I like. You know, I love... Um, horror, like a Hannibal Lecter-style horror, where it's this twisted mind and what's going on in this brain and what's going on in this mind. And that's that's really what draws me to them so much. Um, again, I, uh, the concept of the the monster, you know, I grew up in the, in the 70s and 80s where we had, um, before Freddy Krueger even came along, you actually had the killer that got out of the psych ward that was coming in and slashing people up and was killing people. And that was all the genre I grew up in. So that was what was so familiar to me. And they were just twisted minds who had an opportunity to to vent what they wanted to. Because our film festival is hitting its 20th anniversary, I'm asking filmmakers that I'm interviewing about if they have any uh, particular thoughts about how LGBT cinema has been in the past 20 years. Are there any kind of landmarks for you in that time, or do you see any current trends that you've noticed? Well, the thing that I can tell you more than anything about um, filmmaking is that it has changed so dramatically in the last five to seven years, particularly, because access is so much easier. It's so much easier to get access to cameras and equipment and all the things that are available to us to be able to edit your own works, to be able to create more works, to be able to experiment more, to have avenues to get it out beyond just even film festivals, but to be able to have uh, places to get your film seen. I'm a big fan. I watch a lot of gay and lesbian short films. 
and I can sit on Netflix or YouTube or any of these and just get lost for hours going one to the next to the next because they're all telling a different story. And those weren't available for, for uh, until just the last like, five to seven years. They're all out there, and you can see this content now that you couldn't see before. Um, we have the great ability now more than ever to seek the content we want to see. And I can remember, again, back in the blockbuster video days, you would go in, and there would be a very short gay section of, of gay-style films, and there would be maybe five or six. Now there's such a plethora of films that fall into these specialty genres, and I think that's what's so nice about it. So that has what has changed is the access to content and the ability for people to create their original content. Well, I want to thank you very much for taking some time to talk about your film, and I look forward to seeing it on the big screen at FilmOut. It's been my pleasure, and I appreciate it, and I hope everyone enjoys their opportunity when they see Hook Up, and um, just, yeah, yeah, squirm a little. (laughs) (laughs) That was Stan Madre, whose short film Hook Up screens in June at FilmOut. Neil Milani is the last director I spoke with. He directed the short Fish Tank. Noah, you're early. Yeah. Sorry about that. Sorry. This is Alex. Our friend. He's on his way out. Come in. Essentially, the premise is um, the short follows uh, a college student who goes to um, his first hookup with this enigmatic older gentleman and um, as the night begins to play out, he sort of needs to weigh whether, um, you know, what's going on points to something darker about this guy who's hosting him for the night or um, maybe just happenstance. So. Now, there are a number of films this year that use this kind of the jumping off point, the this meetup idea or hookup or grinder or Tinder. Um, what is it about that kind of um, premise that kind of opens the doors for a lot of different directions that a story can go into? I think the reason why that is such a prolific storyline is that it really embodies this communal anxiety that's present um, in the gay community, especially now um, in the age, in the digital age of, especially with the presence of all these different apps um, where you can sort of more readily position yourself under the terms of anonymity and discretion. And I think it's something that so many people universally experience, whether or not on those platforms. And usually that is sort of a window into, you know, self-discovery, whether that's sexually or emotionally. And um, I think it makes for some really potent, emotionally strong storytelling. So I think, I think that's why, you know, this is such a common premise, but um, it's really been interesting sort of along the festival circuit to see how people have done, um, how how people have riffed on that differently or interpreted it um, on their own terms. And what yours kind of plays with is the interplay between what's really going on and what might be in this guy's head. Because as you say, the this you know, meeting up with someone you've never met before is both exciting on one hand, but then also if you start thinking about it, sometimes your mind can start to wander off into territory of like, what did I just get into? Right. Yeah, there's always that really um, abject and dangerous, you know, duality to these meetups where it promises something 
exciting and, you know, invigorating. And, but at the same time, you're also in doing that, you know, putting yourself on the line and sort of taking a gamble there. So, um, it's, it's a really, it's a really interesting, um, fine line between the two. And that's sort of what, um, I really tried to play on in the film is just exploring the ways in which, you know, I think, you know, the behavioral cues that come about when you first meet someone are so interesting and just the really minute and subtle psychological ways in which we, you know, when we first meet someone, especially with the host guest can be and how belittling it can feel, but then also the way in which you sort of become hyper aware of every single thing and every single thing that someone says and every action someone takes and, you know, what that can mean on a larger scale. Neil Milani, who made the short Fish Tank. Thanks for listening to another edition of listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. If you enjoy the show, please recommend it to a friend and leave a review on iTunes. That's the best way for the podcast to find new listeners. Coming up will be podcasts on witches and Hollywood musicals. The podcast comes out every other Friday, or as close to that schedule as I can possibly manage. Thanks for your patience when I'm delayed. Till our next film fix, I'm Beth Accomando, your resident cinema junkie. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org.